a journal of the plague year, being observations or memorials of the most remarkable occurrences, as well public as private, which happened in London during the last great visitation in 1665, written by a citizen who continued all the while in London, never made public before. Episode 16 Although Defoe's account is scarcely chronological, at this point in the novel we have come to the height of the epidemic, when, by official accounts, around 7,000 people were falling victim to the plague every week. Here he describes what are by now the familiar horrors of the epidemic and his growing restlessness at his self-imposed seclusion. By the way, the so-called Solomon Eagle mentioned in this account was a real person, a composer by the name of Solomon Eccles, who became a Quaker and renounced music as profane entertainment. It is true, when the infection came to such a height as I have now mentioned, there were very few physicians which cared to stir abroad to sick houses, and very many of the most eminent of the faculty were dead, as well as the surgeons also. For now it was indeed a dismal time, and for about a month together, not taking any notice of the bills of mortality, I believe there did not die less than fifteen hundred or seventeen hundred a day, one day after another. One of the worst days we had in the whole time, as I thought, was in the beginning of September, when, indeed, good people began to think that God was resolved to make a full end of the people in this miserable city. This was at that time when the plague was come fully into the eastern parishes. The parish of Aldgate, if I may give my opinion, buried above a thousand a week for two weeks, though the bills did not say so many but it surrounded me at so dismal a rate that there was not a house in twenty uninfected in the minories, in Houndsditch, and in those parts of Aldgate Parish about the Butcher Row and the alleys over against me. I say, in those places, death reigned in every corner. Whitechapel Parish was in the same condition, and though much less than the parish I lived in, yet buried near six hundred a week by the bills, and in my opinion near twice as many. Whole families, and indeed whole streets of families, were swept away together, insomuch that it was frequent for neighbors to call to the bellman to go to such and such house and fetch out the people, for they were all dead. And indeed the work of removing the dead bodies by carts was now grown so very odious and dangerous that it was complained of that the bearers did not take care to clear such houses where all the inhabitants were dead, but that sometimes the bodies lay several days unburied, till the neighboring families were offended with the stench, and consequently infected. And this neglect of the officers was such that the church wardens and constables were summoned to look after it, and even the justices of the hamlets were obliged to venture their lives among them to quicken and encourage them, for innumerable of the bearers died of the distemper, infected by the bodies they were obliged to come so near. And had it not been that the number of poor people who wanted employment and wanted bread, 
as I have said before, was so great that necessity drove them to undertake anything and venture anything. They would never have found people to be employed, and then the bodies of the dead would have lain above ground and have perished and rotted in a dreadful manner. But the magistrates cannot be enough commended in this, that they kept such good order for the burying of the dead, that as fast as any of these they employed to carry off and bury the dead fell sick or died, as was many times the case, they immediately supplied the places with others, which, by reason of the great number of poor that was left out of business, as above, was not hard to do. This occasioned that notwithstanding the infinite number of people which died and were sick, almost all together, yet they were always cleared away and carried off every night, so that it was never to be said of London that the living were not able to bury the dead. As the desolation was greater during those terrible times, so the amazement of the people increased, and a thousand unaccountable things they would do in the violence of their fright, as others did the same in the agonies of their distemper, and this part was very affecting. Some went roaring and crying and wringing their hands along the street. Some would go praying and lifting up their hands to heaven, calling upon God for mercy. I cannot say, indeed, whether this was not in their distraction, but, be it so, it was still an indication of a more serious mind, when they had the use of their senses, and was much better, even as it was, than the frightful yellings and cryings that every day, and especially in the evenings, were heard in some streets. I suppose the world has heard of the famous Solomon Eagle, an enthusiast. He, though not infected at all but in his head, went about denouncing of judgment upon the city in a frightful manner, sometimes quite naked, and with a pan of burning charcoal on his head. What he said, or pretended, indeed, I could not learn. I will not say whether that clergyman was distracted or not, or whether he did it in pure zeal for the poor people, who went every evening through the streets of Whitechapel, and, with his hands lifted up, repeated that part of the liturgy of the church continually. Spare us, good Lord, spare thy people, whom thou hast redeemed with thy precious blood. I say I cannot speak positively of these things, because these were only the dismal objects which represented themselves to me as I looked through my chamber window, for I seldom opened the casements, while I confined myself within doors during that most violent raging of the pestilence, when, indeed, as I have said, many began to think and even to say that there would none escape, and indeed I began to think so too, and therefore kept within doors for about a fortnight and never stirred out, but I could not hold it, Besides, there were some people who, notwithstanding the danger, did not omit publicly to attend the worship of God even in the most dangerous times, and though it is true that a great many clergymen did shut up their churches and fled, as other people did, for the safety of their lives, yet all did not do so. Some ventured to officiate and to keep up the assemblies of the people by constant prayers, and sometimes sermons or brief exhortations to repentance and reformation and this as long as any would come near to hear them. And dissenters did the like also, and even in the very churches where the parish ministers were either dead or fled, nor was there any room for making difference at such a time as this. It was indeed a lamentable thing to hear the miserable lamentations of poor dying creatures 
calling out for ministers to comfort them and pray with them, to counsel them and to direct them, calling out to God for pardon and mercy and confessing aloud their past sins. It would make the stoutest heart bleed to hear how many warnings were then given by dying penitents to others not to put off and delay their repentance to the day of distress. That such a time of calamity as this was no time for repentance, was no time to call upon God. I wish I could repeat the very sound of those groans and of those exclamations that I heard from some poor dying creatures when, in the height of their agonies and distress, and that I could make him that reads this hear, as I imagine I now hear them, for the sound seems still to ring in my ears. If I could but tell this part in such moving accents as should alarm the very soul of the reader, I should rejoice that I recorded those things, however short and imperfect. It pleased God that I was still spared, and very hearty and sound in health, but very impatient of being pent up within doors without air, as I had been for fourteen days or thereabouts, and I could not restrain myself. But I would go to carry a letter for my brother to the post-house. Then it was indeed that I observed a profound silence in the streets. When I came to the post-house, as I went to put in my letter, I saw a man stand in one corner of the yard and talking to another at a window, and a third had opened a door belonging to the office. In the middle of the yard lay a small leather purse with two keys hanging at it, with money in it, but nobody would meddle with it. I asked how long it had lain there. The man of the window said it had lain almost an hour, but that they had not meddled with it, because they did not know but the person who dropped it might come back to look for it. I had no such need of money, nor was the sum so big that I had any inclination to meddle with it, or to get the money, at the hazard it might be attended with. So I seemed to go away, when the man who had opened the door said he would take it up, but so that if the right owner came for it, he should be sure to have it. So he went in and fetched a pail of water and set it down hard by the purse, then went again and fetched some gunpowder, and cast a good deal of powder upon the purse, and then made a train from that which he had thrown loose upon the purse. The train reached about two yards. After this he goes in a third time and fetches out a pair of tongs red hot, and which he had prepared, I suppose, on purpose, and first setting fire to the train of powder, that singed the purse and also smoked the air sufficiently. But he was not content with that, but he then takes up the purse with the tongs, holding it so long till the tongs burnt through the purse, and then he shook the money out onto the pail of water, so he carried it in. The money, as I remember, was about thirteen shilling and some smooth groats and brass farthings. There might perhaps have been several poor people, as I have observed above, that would have been hardy enough to have ventured for the sake of the money, but you may easily see by what I have observed that the few people who were spared were very careful of themselves at that time, when the distress was so exceedingly great. <laughs>